Chapter Two, Part Three of The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain by Charles Dickens. Chapter Two The Gift Diffused, Part Three. I can see very well now, she said. Thank you, Dolph. Don't cry, dear. Father and mother will be comfortable again, tomorrow, and home will be comfortable too. A gentleman is with him, is there? Redlaw released his hold as he listened. I have feared, from the first moment, he murmured to himself, to meet her. There is a steady quality of goodness in her, that I dread to influence. I may be the murderer of what is tenderest and best within her bosom. She was knocking at the door. Shall I dismiss it as an idle foreboding, or still avoid her? he muttered, looking uneasily around. She was knocking at the door again. Of all the visitors who could come here, he said, in a hoarse, alarmed voice, turning to his companion, this is the one I should desire most to avoid. Hide me. The student opened a frail door in the wall, communicating where the garret roof began to slope towards the floor, with a small inner room. Redlaw passed in hastily, and shut it after him. The student then resumed his place upon the couch, and called to her to enter. "'Dear Mr. Edmund,' said Milly, looking round, "'they told me there was a gentleman here.' "'There is no one here but I.' "'There has been someone?' "'Yes.' Yes, there has been someone. She put her little basket on the table, and went up to the back of the couch, as if to take the extended hand. But it was not there. A little surprised, in her quiet way, she leaned over to look at his face, and gently touched him on the brow. Are you quite as well tonight? Your head is not so cool as in the afternoon. Tut, said the student, petulantly, very little ails me. A little more surprise, but no reproach, was expressed in her face, as she withdrew to the other side of the table, and took a small packet of needlework from her basket. But she laid it down again, on second thoughts, and going noiselessly about the room, set everything exactly in its place, and in the neatest order, even to the cushions on the couch, which she touched with so light a hand that he hardly seemed to know it, as he lay looking at the fire. When all this was done, and she had swept the hearth, she sat down, in her modest little bonnet, to her work, and was quietly busy on it directly. "'It's a new muslin curtain for the window, Mr. Edmund,' said Milly, stitching away as she talked. "'It will look very clean and nice, though it costs very little, and it will save your eyes, too, from the light. My William says the room should not be too light just now, when you are recovering so well.' or the glare might make you giddy. He said nothing, but there was something so fretful and impatient in his change of position that her quick fingers stopped, and she looked at him anxiously. The pillows are not comfortable, she said, laying down her work and rising. I will soon put them right. They are very well, he answered. Leave them alone, pray. You make so much of everything. He raised his head to say this, and looking at her so thanklessly, that, after he had thrown himself down again, she stood timidly pausing. 
however she resumed her seat and her needle without having directed even a murmuring look towards him and was soon as busy as before i have been thinking mr edmund that you have been often thinking of late when i have been sitting by how true the saying is that adversity is a good teacher health will be more precious to you after this illness than it has ever been and years hence when this time of year comes round and you remember the days when you lay here sick alone that the knowledge of your illness might not afflict those who are dearest to you your home will be doubly dear and doubly blessed now isn't that a good true thing she was too intent upon her work and too earnest in what she said and too composed and quiet altogether to be on the watch for any look he might direct towards her in reply so the shaft of his ungrateful glance fell harmless and did not wound her ah said milly with her pretty head inclining thoughtfully on one side as she looked down following her busy fingers with her eyes even on me and i am very different from you mr edmund for i have no learning and don't know how to think properly this view of such things has made a great impression since you have been lying ill when i have seen you so touched by the kindness and attention of the poor people downstairs i have felt that you thought even that experience some repayment for the loss of health and i have read in your face as plain as if it was a book that but for some trouble and sorrow we should never know half the good there is about us his getting up from the couch interrupted her where she was going on to say more we needn't magnify the merit mrs william he rejoined slightingly the people downstairs will be paid in good time i dare say for any little extra service they may have rendered me and perhaps they anticipate no less i am much obliged to you too her fingers stopped and she looked at him i can't be made to feel more obliged by your exaggerating the case he said i am sensible that you have been interested in me and i say i am much obliged to you what more would you have her work fell on her lap as she still looked at him walking to and fro with an intolerant air and stopping now and then i say again i am much obliged to you why weaken my sense of what is your due in obligation by preferring enormous claims upon me trouble sorrow affliction adversity one might suppose i had been dying a score of deaths here do you believe mr edmund she asked rising and going nearer to him that i spoke of the poor people of the house with any reference to myself to me laying her hand upon her bosom with a simple and innocent smile of astonishment oh i think nothing about it my good creature he returned i have had an indisposition which your solicitude observe i say solicitude makes a great deal more of than it merits and it's over we can't perpetuate it he coldly took a book and sat down at the table she watched him for a little while until her smile was quite gone and then returning to where her basket was said gently mr edmund would you rather be alone there is no reason why i should detain you here he replied except said milly hesitating and showing her work oh the curtain he answered with a supercilious laugh that's not worth staying for she made up the little packet again and put it in her basket 
then standing before him with such an air of patient entreaty that he could not choose but to look at her she said if you should want me i will come back willingly when you did want me i was quite happy to come there was no merit in it i think you must be afraid that now you are getting well i may be troublesome to you but i should not have been indeed i should have come no longer than your weakness and confinement lasted you owe me nothing but it is right that you should deal as justly by me as if i were a lady even the very lady that you love and if you suspect me of meanly making much of the little i have tried to do to comfort your sick-room you do yourself more wrong than ever you can do me that is why i am sorry that is why i am very sorry if she had been as passionate as she was quiet as indignant as she was calm as angry in her look as she was gentle as loud of tone as she was low and clear she might have left no sense of her departure in the room compared with that which fell upon the lonely student when she went away he was gazing drearily upon the place where she had been when redlaw came out of his concealment and came to the door when sickness lays its hand on you again he said looking fiercely back at him may it be soon die here rot here what have you done returned the other catching at his cloak what change have you wrought in me what curse have you brought upon me give me back myself give me back myself exclaimed redlaw like a madman i am infected i am infectious i am charged with poison for my own mind and the minds of all mankind where i felt interest compassion sympathy i am turning to stone selfishness and ingratitude springing up in my blighted footsteps i am only so much less base than the wretches whom i make so that in the moment of their transformation i can hate them as he spoke the young man still holding to his cloak he cast him off and struck him then wildly hurried out into the night air where the wind was blowing the snow falling the cloud drift sweeping on the moon dimly shining and where blowing in the wind falling with the snow drifting with the clouds shining in the moonlight and heavily looming in the darkness were the phantom's words the gift i have given you shall give again go where you will whither he went he neither knew nor cared so that he avoided company the change he felt within him made the busy streets a desert and himself a desert and the multitude around him in their manifold endurances and ways of life a mighty waste of sand which the winds tossed into unintelligible heaps and made a ruinous confusion of those traces in his breast which the phantom had told him would die out soon were not as yet so far upon their way to death but that he understood enough of what he was and what he made of others to desire to be alone this put it in his mind he suddenly bethought himself as he was going along of the boy who had rushed into his room and then he recollected that of all those with whom he had communicated since the phantom's disappearance that the boy alone had shown no sign of being changed monstrous and odious as the wild thing was to him he determined to seek it out and prove if this were really so and also to seek it with another intention which came into his thoughts at the same time so resolving with some difficulty where he was he directed his steps back to the old college 
and to that part of it where the general porch was, and where, alone, the pavement was worn by the tread of the students' feet. The keeper's house stood just within the iron gates, forming a part of the chief quadrangle. There was a little cloister outside, and from that sheltered place he knew he could look in at the window of their ordinary room, and see who was within. The iron gates were shut, but his hand was familiar with the fastening, and drawing it back by thrusting in his wrist between the bars, he passed through softly, shut it again, and crept up to the window, crumbling the thin crust of snow with his feet. The fire, to which he had directed the boy last night, shining brightly through the glass, made an illuminated place upon the ground. Instinctively avoiding this, and going round it, he looked in at the window. At first, he thought that there was no one there, and that the blaze was reddening only the old beams in the ceiling and the dark walls. But peering in more narrowly, he saw the object of his search coiled asleep before it on the floor. He passed quickly to the door, opened it, and went in. The creature lay in such a fiery heat, that, as the chemist stooped to rouse him, it scorched his head. So soon as he was touched, the boy, not half awake, clutching his rags together with the instinct of flight upon him, half rolled and half ran into a distant corner of the room, where, heaped upon the ground, he stuck his foot out to defend himself. "'Get up,' said the chemist. "'You have not forgotten me.' "'You let me alone,' returned the boy. "'This is the woman's house, not yours.' The chemist's steady eye controlled him somewhat, or inspired him with enough submission to be raised upon his feet, and looked at. "'Who washed them, and put those bandages where they were bruised and cracked?' asked the chemist, pointing to their altered state. "'The woman did.' "'And is it she who made you cleaner in the face, too?' "'Yes, the woman.' Redlaw asked these questions to attract his eyes towards himself, and with the same intent now held him by the chin, and threw his wild hair back, though he loathed to touch him. The boy watched his eyes keenly, as if he thought it needful to show his own defense, not knowing what he might do next, and Redlaw could see well that no change came over him. "'Where are they?' he inquired. "'The woman's out.' "'I know she is. Where is the old man with the white hair and his son?' "'The woman's husband, do you mean?' inquired the boy. "'Aye. Where are those two? Out. Something's the matter, somewhere. They were fetched out in a hurry, and told me to stop here. Come with me, said the chemist, and I'll give you money. Come where? And how much will you give? I'll give you more shillings than you ever saw, and bring you back soon. Do you know your way to where you came from? You let me go, returned the boy, suddenly twisting out of his grasp. I'm not a-going to take you there. Let me be, or I'll heave some fire at you. He was down before it, and ready, with his savage little hand, to pluck the burning coals out. What the chemist had felt, in observing the effect of his charmed influence stealing over those with whom he came in contact, was not nearly equal to the cold vague terror with which he saw this baby monster put it at defiance. It chilled his blood to look on the immovable impenetrable thing, in the likeness of a child, with its sharp malignant face turned up to his, and its almost infant hand, ready at the bars. 
Listen, boy, he said. You shall take me where you please, so that you take me where the people are very miserable or very wicked. I want to do them good, and not to harm them. You shall have money, as I have told you, and I will bring you back. Get up. Come quickly. He made a hasty step towards the door, afraid of her returning. Will you let me walk by myself, and never hold me, nor yet touch me? said the boy, slowly withdrawing the hand with which he threatened and beginning to get up. I will. And let me go, before, behind, or any ways I like? I will. Give me some money first, then, and go. The chemist laid a few shillings, one by one, in his extended hand. To count them was beyond the boy's knowledge, but he said one, every time, and avariciously looked at each as it was given, and at the donor. He had nowhere to put them, out of his hand, but in his mouth, and he put them there. Redlaw then wrote with his pencil on a leaf of his pocket-book that the boy was with him, and laying it on the table, signed to him to follow. Keeping his rags together, as usual, the boy complied, and went out with his bare head and naked feet into the winter night. Preferring not to depart by the iron gate by which he had entered, where they were in danger of meeting her whom he so anxiously avoided, the chemist led the way, through some of those passages among which the boy had lost himself, and by that portion of the building where he lived, to a small door of which he had the key. When they got into the street, he stopped to ask his guide, who instantly retreated from him, if he knew where they were. The savage thing looked here and there, and at length nodded his head pointed in the direction he designed to take. Redlaw going on at once, he followed, something less suspiciously, shifting his money from his mouth into his hand, and back again into his mouth, and stealthily rubbing it bright upon his shreds of dress, as he went along. Three times, in their progress, they were side by side. Three times they stopped, being side by side. Three times the chemist glanced down at his face, and shuddered as it forced upon him one reflection. The first occasion was when they were crossing an old churchyard, and Redlaw stopped among the graves, utterly at a loss how to connect them with any tender, softening, or consolatory thought. The second was, when the breaking forth of the moon induced him to look up at the heavens, where he saw her in her glory, surrounded by a host of stars he still knew by the names and histories which human science has appended to them, but where he saw nothing else he had been wont to see, felt nothing he had been wont to feel, in looking up there, on a bright night. The third was when he stopped to listen to a plaintive strain of music, but could only hear a tune, made manifest to him by the dry mechanism of the instruments and his own ears, with no address to any mystery within him without a whisper in it of the past, or of the future, powerless upon him as the sound of last year's running water, or the rushing of last year's wind. At each of these three times, he saw with horror that, in spite of the vast intellectual distance between them, and their being unlike each other in all physical respects, the expression on the boy's face was the expression on his own. They journeyed on for some time, now through such crowded places, that he often looked over his shoulder thinking he had lost his guide, but generally finding him within his shadow on his other side, now by way so quiet, that he could have counted his short, 
quick, naked footsteps coming on behind, until they arrived at a ruinous collection of houses, and the boy touched him and stopped. In there, he said, pointing out one house where there were shattered lights in the windows, and a dim lantern in the doorway, with lodgings for travellers, painted on it. Redlaw looked about him, from the houses to the waste piece of ground on which the houses stood, or rather did not altogether tumble down, unfenced, undrained, unlighted, and bordered by a sluggish ditch. From that, to the sloping line of arches, part of some neighboring viaduct or bridge with which it was surrounded, and which lessened gradually towards them, until the last but one was a mere kennel for a dog, and the last a plundered little heap of bricks. From that, to the child, close to him, cowering and trembling with the cold, and limping on one little foot, while he coiled the other round his leg to warm it, yet staring at all these things with that frightful likeness of expression so apparent in his face, that Redlaw started from him. "'In there,' said the boy, pointing out the house again. "'I'll wait.' "'Will they let me in?' asked Redlaw. "'Say you're a doctor,' he answered with a nod. "'There's plenty ill here.' Looking back on his way to the house door, Redlaw saw him trail himself upon the dust and crawl within the shelter of the smallest arch, as if he were a rat. He had no pity for the thing, but he was afraid of it, and when it looked out of its den at him, he hurried to the house as a retreat. Sorrow, wrong, and trouble, said the chemist, with a painful effort at some more distinct remembrance, at least haunt this place darkly. He can do no harm, who brings forgetfulness of such things here. End of chapter 2, part 3